0: The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter d'Apon. I'll try your filet fish There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Companies that set out to change the world should stand for something. Something that matters. For Tanium, it was managing and protecting the world's growing number of endpoints. Tanium empowers organizations to embrace digital transformation and change the way people both work and live. They help critical government agencies see what's coming, protect and defend five branches of the U.S. military, and more than half of the Fortune 100 rely on Tanium to manage and secure their critical assets. To learn more, visit Tanium.com.
3: Welcome to the Science of Magic, a program combining the science and magic of today's leading topics to co-create new solutions and promote evolutionary thinking. We're coming to you through the Leader in Responsible, Paranormal, and Alternative Science Programming, the XON Broadcast Network, XZBN.net, and can also be found on our website, thescienceofmagic.net. I'm your host, Gwilda Wyaka. This hour we'll be exploring Rewrite the Story. Shamanic healing is a powerful modality that's been around for over 50,000 years and found at the base of all cultures. It's considered a spiritual healing practice in that it works at the unseen or quantum level of our being. That's not to say medicine people don't also use herbs to treat physical level or alter consciousness, but the hallmark of the shaman is frequency mastery. One universal spiritual illness treated by shaman of all nationalities is often referred to as soul loss. Don't get me wrong, we never lose our soul, but through trauma, we do disconnect from some of our natural frequency expression. When a person is confronted with a traumatic event, a natural response that helps us survive as a species is to do whatever it takes to prevent a repeat performance. We decide on what created the circumstance and reframe our life story around it. If the event happened when we're very young or was particularly traumatic, we'll often forget the original incident. Continuing our lives minus the behavior expression we believe created the trauma. The problem is small children or traumatized adults are often erroneous in their assumptions. A simplistic example of this would be a small girl getting her hand smashed in a door while trying to follow her father as he leaves for work. Door closes, father disappears, and hand is hurt. Mother may pick the child up and calm her, but the child must frame the trauma in such a way she feels she can avoid a repeat, thereby reestablishing safety. The little one may decide that the hurt hand was a result of her father disappearing and ascertain it isn't safe if he's not present. The story written, she's not safe if father is not there. Every bad thing that happens when he's not around reinforces that reframed reality. Unless we re-examine our conclusions, stories are carried into adulthood. In this case, fear of abandonment may be projected onto our significant other, causing relationship problems, resulting in the very rejection she fears further reinforcing the story. Shamanic healing can reconnect her to the frequency she disconnected from, the frequency of safety in the absence of a male. This correction takes place at the quantum or spiritual level. However, the healing can't manifest physically and show up in her life until it's processed emotionally and mentally. With the appropriate frequency available to her once again at the quantum level, she can process her feelings around the reoccurring abandonment. However, she'll continue to recreate the situation, until she rewrites the story on the mental level. This reframing changes the neurological pathways of the brain, eradicating the knee-jerk reactions and responses that have plagued her life. Old stories that are not revisited and modified or released altogether project the events of our past onto our present circumstance and make a rerun out of our future. One of the major components in shamanic healing is to live one's life in a different way. We translate the events of our lives based on our stories. Our stories create our reality. If we don't like the current reality, we can change it by reclaiming our lost frequencies, processing emotionally, and rewriting our stories. This method is life-changing for the individual. But just imagine what we can transform en masse by rewriting the outmoded stories of our culture. Our guest this hour, Lisa Wimberger, is the founder of Neurosculpting Institute. She holds a master's degree in education, a foundation certification in neuroleadership, and certificates in medical neuroscience, visual perception, and the brain and neurobiology. She's the author of New Beliefs, New Brain, Free Yourself from Stress and Fear, and Neurosculpting, A Whole Brain Approach to Heal Trauma, Rewrite Limiting Beliefs, and Find Wholeness. After this commercial break, I'll introduce Lisa, and together we'll take a closer look at how stories create our reality and explore our ability to rewrite them, so don't go away. You're listening to The Science of Magic. Prior innovative episodes are available free of charge on our website, thescienceofmagic.net. Welcome back. This is The Science of Magic, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. I'm your host, Gwelda Wiecka. Our guest this hour, Lisa Wimberger, is the founder of the Neurosculpting Modality. Lisa runs a private meditation practice in Colorado teaching clients who suffer from stress disorders. She's a faculty member of the Kapalu Yoga Meditation Center and the Law Enforcement Survival Institute, Omega Institute, and 1440 Multiversity. Lisa's website is NeurosculptingInstitute.com. Lisa, thanks for joining us on the Science of Magic. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. <laughs> I, I love that name, this, the, the Law Enforcement Survival Institute. You <laughs> just yeah, want to it's, survive law enforcement, right? Uh, that's the question, and <laughs> that is the dilemma. <laughs> <laughs> I take it you work with PTSD there.
0: Yeah, I do. I go into police agencies and I help them um, in a preventative way. Try to circumvent that. Help them in a post-crisis way, and really help them try to rehumanize from from the um,
3: callous emotional calluses that they create. So, um, in order to perform uh, as a as an officer, you have to kind of lock down on some of your uh, natural expression. Is that what you're saying? Well, they certainly are asked and required
0: to be in uh, survival fight or flight mode as part of their job. So um, because they're in that very um, survival based space, as a requirement, it's very difficult for them to turn it off. And kind of like the example you gave in the beginning with the girl who got her hand smashed, she went into survival mode to create her story of protection. They then create Many, many layers of stories of protection that that literally inhibit their expression. Uh, I like the word the phrase you used, clamp them down. and And they really become um calloused to some of the things that might have moved them before outside of work. so it's it's really an attempt to get them to be able to
3: be who they once were outside of work. Mm, amazing. Um, on another subject, you you opened one of your books with uh, your story about um, having, I have a son with this disorder, um, the uh, vagus seizures. Would you mind explaining what that is? Yeah. Um, so we all
0: have a vagus nerve, which is a, actually a bundle of nerves that goes from the brainstem, runs the full length of the spinal column and ends quite low in the spine. And this nerve is Um, carries information from the brain to the body and from the body back up to the brain. It's a two-lane highway. Uh, When it sends signals from brain to body, it is communicating specifically to our organs. So if we feel unsafe, it's going to communicate a message to lungs, heart, gut, liver, all of those things. Conversely, when we have sensation, uh, we experience things uh, through matters of the heart or the gut or, um, or our breath and our skin, even that information gets communicated back up to the brain, um, in this two lane highway. So it regulates us in profound ways in regards to how we feel safe in the world. So when this nerve is hyperactive, it may, in my case, and possibly in your son's case, it may be a little bit trigger happy, so to speak. And when there's the slightest threat of um, unsafety, then it may signal an inappropriately large response to our visceral being. And it may drop the heart rate too fast. It may slow the breath too quickly. It may dysregulate the bowels, and that can lead people to a whole spectrum of experiences during stress. Everything from, you know, I feel shame, I feel invisible, I feel like I'm dissociating, I feel numb, all the way to I feel faint and lightheaded, all the way to my case, which was very extreme, which is play dead. And then the um, nervous system responds accordingly, and the heart stops and there's a bradycardia moment. There's uh, a, a cutoff of oxygen to the brain. So there's a cognitive shutdown. And then there are tonic seizures um, in the extreme cases, which in my case have
3: resulted in flatlining on many occasions. Right. It was it was the same with my son. It's very terrifying for both parties, the one watching mm-hmm. and, and the one going through it. And you had some pretty interesting experiences during your seizures, as did he, uh, where you actually accessed alternate reality and received information about neurons, communication and healing. Would you share some of that with us? Absolutely. Um, one of the profound um
0: confusing and exciting aspects of having those seizures for most of my life was that I didn't know I was having them, nor did I know I was unconscious. Um, so what would happen is I would get a seizure halo. I would know something was about to be terribly wrong, but instantly my brain was very busy in what I thought was reality. So I'll give you an example, a very pragmatic example. When I had my seizure in front of my daughter Um, She was about three. I I bit into a chicken bone. Now, in real time, I had a seizure that moment and I flatlined in a food court. But what I thought happened because this was completely visceral and accessible to me was I thought I grabbed her hand. I walked into the bathroom, I was examining my tooth in the mirror, I was tasting blood running down my throat, I was going through the list of dentist phone numbers in my mind and I was trying to figure out how I was going to get my tooth fixed. None of that happened. This was all my um, brain following a, a parallel tract, so to speak, of reality that is more viscerally accessible to me as a memory than things that have actually happened. I can still taste that um, blood in my throat. I can still see my daughter in the periphery in the mirror and none of that actually manifested in real time, but other things would happen. I often went to other places that later when I read books by, you know, uh, the teachings of Don Juan, I would realize I'm having these parallel experiences as, as what some of these shamans have described. I, I met with, large insects and, and beings that gave me information. Um, I met with a, a female entity that called herself Zahara and told me all sorts of things about how neurons functioned and told me I needed to go, you know, study this more. Um, I, I would have these experiences, honestly, not knowing that I was flatlined in the moment, but being so consumed with these visceral experiences that I remember them as some of my strongest memories. And That's they've amazing. led me in directions that
3: um, have changed my life. You know, my, my son had this very similar experience in that at one point, what, we thought we weren't going to be able to pull him out of it. And once he came back, he said, well, I was uh, accessing information that could change the world and I didn't want to let go of it, but I couldn't come back with it.
4: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: I I understand that. Yeah. So how did your experiences with seizures influence your work with neurosculpting?
0: Well, the seizures got so bad that I knew I wasn't going to come back um, because the very last one I had was um, one where I just, I was done. I didn't want to come back. I didn't want to start breathing. My husband had to prompt me to breathe numerous times and I just did not want to come back. And I thought, uh uh-oh, if I were alone during the next seizure, I would not come back. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd just be gone. So, you know, my daughter was really young, and I knew I needed to fix this. So really what I did was I had to go study the vagus nerve so that I could get a physiological handle on this process. And my thought was that if I could um, learn more about the vagus response, and ultimately I learned much about neuroplasticity that told me I could literally rewrite my autonomic response to the next seizure trigger. I was all about figuring out how to do that. And so that's really the impetus was I needed to not have another seizure because if I were by myself, I, I would, that would be my last one. Mm.
3: Mm-hmm. So it was self-serving really. So this leads us to what exactly is neurosculpting? Neurosculpting is the process
0: that I uh, figured out through you know trial by fire that I basically took my meditation practice and I realized it did not have a structure and it was um, hoping, wishing, praying and uh, and a chasing after bliss which is not the mechanisms of rewriting that's that's often the mechanisms of escape at least in my case it was. So I had to re-engineer my meditation practice so that I wasn't escaping and searching for bliss, I was actually creating a safe enough container inside my body to let those unsafe stories bubble up so I could edit them Mm -hmm. and re-embed them. And that required me understanding neuroplasticity and how the brain needs to be entrained. So basically, I played with could I put a very methodical thought-based structure to meditation? Could I put in steps that activated certain parts of the brain and consequently subdued others? Could I put a strategy, a neuroscience strategy to this? And I played with it until the five steps in the sequence that I eventually landed on was the one that allowed me to rehearse a new script to my seizure halos and rehearse it so well and so viscerally that I believed it to be true so that in real time... The next time a seizure halo hit, I actually used a different autonomic response. I did not seize. I enacted literally the rehearsal script I had been rehearsing for about a year. And that's because I embedded it.
3: What is neuroplasticity? Help us with that
0: neuroplasticity is the term that science uses to describe our brain's ability to learn and adapt in each and every moment. So things we think are just aspects of who we are, are actually opportunities for us to either reinforce them or edit them. We often reinforce things subconsciously, and then we say, well, that's just who I am my preferences for food. That's just what I like. No, mm-hmm. all of those things are on the table to be edited. And Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor proves this in in her recovery from a, um, a, a left hemisphere stroke. She yeah, proves, that was
3: amazing. Yeah.
0: She proves that when she came back online completely, everything she thought was a genetic trait a personality trait were actually things that she had choice around and and that's what neuroplasticity is its science's definition of choice at the most neural
3: cellular subconscious level And so, uh, real briefly, because we're just about out of time, what is uh, the halo you were talking about? A halo is really just
0: that second or two warning of a seizure. It's usually, in my case, when the stomach drops out and you feel uh, the blood pressure drop profoundly. You've got about a second or two before you're going to lose consciousness. That's the halo that I would experience. Other seizure halos are different. Some people experience a a daze or a, a fugue state. In my case, it was blood pressure drop, stomach about to drop out like
3: I'm on a roller coaster, and then about a second or two of consciousness. So you just have a second or two to make the correction so that you don't go into a full seizure.
0: Correct, and I had to rehearse that in a safe container enough times so that in the real moment
3: it was an autonomic response. That's pretty amazing, pretty amazing. Did Well, (laughs) out of time for this segment, when we come back, we'll talk about how you managed that and was it trial and error? So Lisa and I will return to our discussion on the other side of this break, so don't you go away. We're coming to you through the X-Zone Broadcast Network. Don't miss the other fine shows and hosts on xzbn.net. There's a bundle of them. You're listening to The Science of Magic, your resource for creative solutions in a changing world, thescienceofmagic.net.
2: this product is a real winner to learn more about one two three ready tv visit our website at www.xzbn.net
1: this is the exxon broadcast network broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers including cnn broadcast network Sirius satellite network star media good news radio network
3: Welcome back. This is the Science of Magic, a place where magic and science come together to promote enlightenment. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. We cover what's hot. For in-depth exploration of leading-edge subjects from numerous authorities and viewpoints, join our email family to receive our topic-driven episode collections at thescienceofmagic.net. Our guest this hour is Lisa Wimberger, author of New Beliefs, New Brain, Free Yourself from Stress and Fear, and Neurosculpting, A Whole-Brain Approach to Heal Trauma, Rewrite limiting beliefs and find wholeness. We were just getting into um, how you, by trial and error, worked your way through um, the halo portion of um, your just before you went into seizure and were able to rewrite your your um, your script enough to uh, prevent the seizures. Was that a trial and error? I mean, did you uh, fail at that several times (laughs) before you got it to work for you? Yes, it was definitely (laughs) trial
0: and error. Um, Basically, what I did was I had learned that the brain follows a method to its um, highest optimal learning states. And that if we could tease certain parts of the brain into receptivity, then we would prime it for optimal learning, basically priming it for optimal memory. That's what learning is. Learning is creating memories. So, I clearly had a memory on a very autonomic level that when there was a stress or fear, I would have a tonic seizure. That was a pattern that was well established. So, I didn't know what literally triggered this. I didn't know what sort of stress. It was always very ambiguous. So, I couldn't really work the unknown. So, what I had to do was go to where do I have control over this process? Well, I have awareness at a halo, meaning I have about a second or two awareness that I'm about to lose consciousness. So that's a moment of choice. I, I have awareness. So what could I do with that? So this is where I played with the structure. I knew I had to methodically entrain my brain to be able to evoke that trigger in a sandbox sort of way, in a rehearsal way, without actually having a seizure so that I could rehearse a new response to that halo. So I knew I couldn't just go to the memory of a halo. It it would trigger my body. So I had to first really tease my brain into understanding it was safe I had to tease the front of my brain into optimized learning so that the moment I retrieved the memory of a halo, it was ready to add on to that experience while simultaneously convincing me I was safe. So I was pulling up this trigger in a sandbox environment that was meticulously created through a few steps. Then... When I pulled up this trigger and I held it in my mind, um, I rehearsed. So, So a tonic seizure is paralysis. I rehearsed the opposite of paralysis. I rehearsed that in response to a fear where my blood pressure was about to drop and my stomach was about to drop out, I rehearsed kicking, fighting, biting, punching, screaming. I rehearsed the opposite of paralysis. As though it, I were re- rehearsing a play,
3: really, but it was, but it was still within the fight or flight, so instead of a flight yes, as in yes. unconsciousness, you went into fight.
0: Yeah, and actually be, and, and there, I'll tell you the reason for that in a, in a moment. but I had to rehearse that script in a meditative sandbox um, after priming my brain, so that over time, with enough repetition, my brain perceived that response to actually be the memory of what the body's supposed to do at a seizure halo. So after months and months of rehearsing this in a very methodical way, um, a seizure halo hit during a high time of stress, felt my um, blood pressure drop, my stomach dropped out, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to have a seizure. And instead, my body went into the rehearsal script, which was kicking, punching, screaming, and fighting. And I was a, a loose cannon. I was a complete and utter banshee. Um, but I f- literally fought my way through that trigger, and I did not have a seizure. And I've never had a seizure since. I've had other halos, and I don't even now have the fight response. I just go, "Oh yeah," I just a, a shudder moves through me, and I say, "Yeah, oh, I don't do that anymore." <laughs> um, Amazing. But but the reason I I had to move from freeze to fight is very important to understand. Um, we lump fight, flee, freeze into the same category. They are absolutely not the same category according to the brain. We say there are stress responses and they are, but freeze is profoundly different. Freeze is regulated by the vagus nerve and the brain stem. Fight and flee is not. Fight and flee is regulated by midbrain, which is a completely different ballgame. If you have a midbrain response to stress, you stay oxygenated, meaning you stay conscious. And you go into arousal, which is very sustainable for mammals. If you go into freeze, you're going to brainstem regulated functions, which inhibit oxygen to the brain, which are not sustainable to mammals in extreme cases. So they're very different responses. And freeze is the most primitive. It's literally what reptiles do. And it's wired into us as our first and foremost response. Um, So if one is going to freeze, then an evolutionary step up would be to move into fight and flee.
3: That makes perfect sense, yeah.
0: Right. Now, if you're in in fight and flee, then the evolutionary step is to move into not doing that at all and going into compassion and forgiveness and joy and love and all of that. But when you're in freeze it's very difficult to bypass the next mammalian link to our highest self. You have to move through it. So people in freeze are often really, really at a disadvantage when we teach people stress management skills because we're teaching from a fight flee standpoint. Um, We're teaching to calm the system. But in freeze, you want to arouse the system. So that you move out of paralysis. So for me, it was vital. It was literally an evolutionary step for me to fight and flee. And I needed to go there first. And once I did, because I had so many tools, it was very easy to never go back to fight and flee again at that particular trigger. Then it was easy to move into my highest self. Oh, compassion, empathy for myself, um, acceptance of who I am, all of that stuff came but not before and not without moving through
3: our evolutionary brain. Amazing. Let's talk a little bit about beliefs. Do you see our beliefs as limiting our reality? A 1,000%.
0: And also our beliefs expanding our reality 1,000%. So it goes both ways. But everything we experience is filtered through a set of scripts. These scripts are both conscious and subconscious. These scripts are really patterns, and these patterns develop into our identity. So to me, when you say beliefs, I also think patterns. And, um, and our patterns dictate what we perceive as reality. This is why you look at eyewitness testimony, and nobody has the same description, even of yeah. colors, genders, races to the point of that person's belief about what, what they expected to see is literally what edits out information and creates what we perceive as vision. Vision does not happen at the eyes. Vision happens not even at the back of the brain where the visual primary cortex is. Vision happens when that information goes from eyes to thalamus to primary visual cortex all the way in the back, back up to two separate streams in the parietal lobe, back through the thalamus, back to analysis.
3: That, so then it's filtered through our stories.
0: It's filtered through our stories. Literally, that's why it, that's why you can see these videos of, of a gorilla dancing in the middle of a basketball game. And most people don't see the gorilla because they've filtered it through the set of expected things to see in a basketball game. And gorilla does not fit. Doesn't so fit regardless of whether the eyes pick up the gorilla, which they did because that's mm-hmm. photons, regardless of whether the eyes pick it up, the brain edits it out To create an appropriate prediction of what we
3: expect to experience. Our reality is
0: created from the inside.
3: So what is the relationship between PTSD and our scripts, stories, or belief systems? Well, when
0: we experience a trauma profoundly enough, that trauma is processed in a way, just like your story, where we develop that as the lens of life, we have to now hyper-vigilantly prepare to avoid that situation over and over again. And to avoid that situation, we must have that situation accessible and rehearsed. So a, a profound trauma can replay as though it's being recalled and evoked and re-experienced over and over again. That will change what we believe the world is like. That will change how we experience all the next moments. If we keep pulling up a past story as our lens then any new moments coming in, get filtered through that lens. That is what PTSD is. It's, um, it's not just a post-traumatic stress. It's a post-traumatic prediction for all moments to follow. And, um, and that gets very limiting because the more we evoke it and rehearse it, the more things happening in real time get associated with it that may never have even been associated with the actual trauma. So we start to expand our set of all things that validate and trigger
3: that response. Yeah, I've seen this and I've seen this shamanically. Um, I say soul loss begets soul loss. In other words, you have an original trauma, but then the circumstance of the belief system actually starts recreating it or reinterpreting events to fit into that story. Is that the same thing? Absolutely. Do do unconscious belief systems underlie phobias? In my mind,
0: I believe they do. In fact, we even have genetic markers for particular scripts. So, for instance, we we do have genetic markers for fear of snakes and spiders, um, and that doesn't mean we all express that. But we have that in our genetic code. We have genetic markers for fear of certain tones and pitches that um, have been tracked to the tones and pitch of a war cry of, of a primate, um, nails on a chalkboard, particular frequencies of babies screaming. We, we have scripts encoded into our genetic warehouse that can be accessed and of course, if we have an event that inflames one of those scripts, um, we can easily access a, a whole entire lineage of stories and responses. But in real time, too, when we have, a, we, we have a situation that we then code and store as threatening, then we can evoke that at any time, anywhere, and it becomes embedded and it can be edited if we've embedded
3: it, we can edit it. The key is we have to realize that, A, we've embedded it, and, B, know how to edit it. Is that, is that correct? I would say that's very helpful, yes. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're going to have to take an, another short break here. On the other side, um, I'd like to talk about that genetic embedding, and that's pretty fascinating. So Lisa and I will be back shortly, so don't leave us now. This is the Science of Magic, thescienceofmagic.net, your resource to altruistic professionals of science and the esoteric, working to create common ground for the betterment of our world. We're in this together. Your thoughts are very important. If you have any comments or topics of interest to suggest, please email me at info at the I love to get your emails and I will respond. Welcome back. This is the Science of Magic, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I'm your host, Gwilda Yeka. What's up in your world? Email me at info at the of dot net and suggest a topic that's on your mind. You're probably not the only one interested. Our guest this hour is Lisa Wimberger, author of New Beliefs, New Brain, Free Yourself from Stress and Fear, and Neurosculpting, a Whole Brain Approach to Heal Trauma, Rewrite Limiting Beliefs, and find wholeness, Lisa. Something triggered my shamanic brain, if you will, when you were talking about um, uh, scripts or embedded in our DNA, basically uh, fear, fear responses. Um, shamanically speaking, I've worked with people from particular nationalities and start to notice a commonality in their phobias, and the Jewish people are one of them the never forget, nothing's ever safe. Um, And that's really difficult for people to get, get through. Have you seen that? And does what you do help with it?
0: I've definitely seen cultural shared trauma. Um, I've seen racial shared trauma and I've seen specific um, familial patterns when, when I have students and clients all in the same family, Um, you know, We are accessing code. That's what DNA is. It's code. And it's a warehouse of code. And we're all accessing it. And for the most part, that code is pretty shared. It's pretty darn identical in many cases. But because we are evolutionary beings and because we um, adapt, and that's the only way we can survive, what happens in a generation that experiences a profound trauma is that that generation develops skills and behaviors to address that trauma. Those skills and behaviors get embedded as memories um, and those literally get encoded, sometimes to the point where they change the genetic code we pass on. So in this current lifetime, You experience a trauma, you can literally alter the code in your genes that you then pass on to your unborn children so that in an adaptable situation, they're born with an inherent set of skills to deal with a widespread trauma that is specific to your culture, your race, your generation, and that equips them to survive and And this is literally called epigenetics, is that your your experience in this particular lifetime affects the genetic story you pass to your children and to your grandchildren. You can have grandchildren manifesting phobias that they've never experienced, but that were appropriately experienced by you, the grandmother um, in your, you know, youth growing up, like say, in a war zone or you know, as a disempowered person, um, I highly recommend the work of Mark Wolin. He wrote a fantastic book called It Didn't Start With You.
4: Mm-hmm. And it's,
0: it's an amazing journey through epigenetic trauma. And he gives such profound insight into the process of us as almost holographic beings that get to express those that went before us. And project onto those that are not yet
3: born, literally through our coding. That's amazing, isn't it? So we're we're given the opportunity to break the genetic chain. You know, shaman have been working with this for years, is being able to break that genetic chain, like the Celtic shamans say it's in the blood. But you can access it in the blood and change it. Is, is this what we're talking the same thing here? We are talking the same thing here. Absolutely. Um, if I change
0: my relationship to cultural, ancestral, genetic, racial traumas in this lifetime, I will change the expression of my genes. I will then pass on that most current expression to my unborn children.
3: How about the ones that are already there, Lisa? Well,
0: you know what? You can actually affect them too. You can affect them almost by... Role modeling and, and of course, you know, if you believe in energetic contracts, we're all contracted with each other in a certain way. Once one person shifts, the other person then shifts accordingly. Um, So you can. So for instance, um, if I um, give my daughter tools to deal with anxiety and role model that and, um, and create a new story for her, then she may literally turn off her genetic expression for anxiety, silencing that gene. So she passes that on to her children. She passes on a code that says this gene is not important to express in this lifetime. It's silenced. So wow. she is born, so she has a child born without a predisposition to anxiety. And that's so, how epigenetics works.
3: So you see this work as being very evolutionary, don't
0: you? Absolutely. It, we think we're helping in ourselves and we think we're in it for self-development, but we're actually in it as just a ripple effect for what's come
3: before us and what's about to come after us. Do you think we're in a a time where we have a greater opportunity to evolve at this particular time in history, and if so, why? I do,
0: because we're so globally connected. The web has never been easier to jump around in. Um, Literally, uh, the internet web, but the web of life. Um, And information is processed so quickly. Our brains have processed and evolved as quickly, you know, as computers. So you see how fast they process now and how effortless it is to process high
3: levels of information. The brain's doing the same thing. So, you know, ultimately, do we need stories? Um, So far, we've been talking about trading one story for another. Do we need them? Do we need that framework? Well, um,
0: all of the things that give us joy and make us feel love are also stories, too. So I would say... Um, we are stories. And we just get to be the author of them. I don't, for me, my personal belief is we're never not in a story. They're, they're the fabric of this, this incarnation. It's just, what are we writing? (laughs) So yeah, we need stories. We need the stories of love and empathy and compassion and joy and forgiveness and evolution. We need those stories.
3: You know, you do, you do some pretty interesting work with first responders. Would you share some about that? Yeah, um, I see their stories and I
0: see what their work requires them to do. And I see that some of them start with a very open minded, open heart space, wanting to protect and serve and, and empathically help people. And that's not how they end up industry wise, they end up disconnected, dissociated, calloused, and profiling, um, all sorts of things. And and so my work with them has really been my framework is this. You got someone with a finger on a trigger. I want that person to have tools of emotional regulation. End of story.
3: It's as simple as that. Mm hmm. You know, I've I've seen this in the medical profession. Um, I'm a preceptor for the University of Colorado School of Medicine. So I get to talk to these young docs when they're just young and just making it through medical school. And then I also talk to, to doctors that have been in the field a long time. And they're first responders. They're dealing with life and death all the time. And I see the same thing, a, a disillusionment, a shutting down. Um, it would almost appear calloused, but they aren't. Is this the same sort of thing that we're talking about here? I would say so. You spend most of your life at work and it requires you to jump through certain
0: hoops. It's, it's very difficult to perceive that when you're not at work, those hoops don't exist anymore. You kind of carry it with you. And so what I do is I try to teach officers that um, the rigors of their job do not have to define their life. They can take the uniform off at night, which they don't know they can. Literally, they don't take their uniforms off in their minds. They don't take their badges off. A cop is a cop off-duty. A cop is never a civilian. If you're a cop, you're either a cop on-duty or you're an off-duty cop. That means you always wear that badge. And Mm -hmm. I try to teach them that they're civilians outside of work so they can access a different set of scripts that may keep them open to to who they once were and who
3: they want to be. Mm -hmm. You know, many of us spend a lot of time in front of a TV being told stories. Do you see our beliefs being programmed by the media at this point in time? Oh, goodness.
0: We're programmed by everything. We're programmed by the smell of the air, the sounds in our environment, the stories that we most frequently visit. That's how programming works. If it's an experience we most frequently visit, it becomes the truth. So how many headlines did you see today? (laughs) <laughs> you might not have even read the articles. How many headlines did you see today? And that's the most repeated story for you. Just, just, just have that in your mind. Gee, that's the most repeated set of words I experienced today. That will affect you.
3: It's, it's amazing. And is it, how do you see the, this work of neurosculpting as being, we're just about out of time, but as being mm-hmm. able to help us evolve as a culture? Well, once
0: we know we have choice and once we know we can edit those stories, then we get to do our due diligence and be our highest selves. We get to move in that direction at will, by choice, with practice, time and investment. And it's all ours.
3: It's our birthright. It sounds to me like this isn't just for first responders or people with PTSD. It sounds to me that this would be useful for anyone wanting to evolve.
0: This is my
3: lifeline in the most mundane to the most
0: profound trauma, I, I I can't even imagine life any other way
3: than to know I have choice. Choice is an amazing thing, isn't it? An amazing mm-hmm. thing. Um, so you're 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 in Colorado. Do you see people personally?
0: I do. I see people in person. I see um, clients over Skype and at the institute. We do. Online classes, live stream classes. We have self-paced immersions. We have a
3: a whole learning system on our website, a learning store. So we're we're out of time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being with us, Lisa. Our guest this hour has been Lisa Wimberger, author of New Beliefs, New Brain, Free Yourself from Stress and Fear, and Neurosculpting. Her website is neurosculptinginstitute.com. This has been The Science of Magic. For in-depth, leading-edge topics please contact our website, thescienceofmagic.net. Until next time, dear ones, may you be blessed with knowledge and comforted with love as you rewrite your reality.